0: Welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm so excited to talk to my next guest, Bruce Coffin. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Authors on the Air. I hope you are all well. Um, You are safe and you are happy. That's the most important thing. There are so many great authors right now and so many fabulous books to read. One of my favorites is Bruce Coffin. Uh, He goes by Bruce Robert Coffin as his, uh, his author name. But his most recent Detective Byron mystery is called Within Plain Sight. His books are absolutely phenomenal. They are some of the most authentic police procedurals I've ever read. And having worked for a couple of police departments and seeing how, in a big one and a very small one, seeing how the police operate, and I I, I actually was in the detective division, um, it's fascinating to me how realistic Bruce writes his characters. But let me tell you a little bit about him first. He is an award-winning author. Of this Detective Byron series, he is a former detective sergeant with more than 27 years as a LEO. That's a law enforcement officer, for those who don't know. He supervised all homicide and violent crime investigation for Maine's largest city. Following the terror attacks of September 11, Bruce spent four years investigating counterterrorism for the FBI earning the director's award, the highest award a non-agent can receive. For that, we have to thank him for his service. in his novel *The Beyond the Truth*, he won the Killer National Silver Falcon Award for Best Procedural. He was a finalist for the Agatha Award for Best Contemporary Novel and a finalist for the Maine Literary Award for Best Crime Fiction. His short fiction appears in several anthologies, including *Best American Mystery Series* of 2016. It is my pleasure to welcome back John <laughs> Bruce Robert Coffin. Bruce. Welcome back to Office on the Air.
1: Thank you so much, Pam. Uh, you're much too kind. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: I am so happy that you're back because the last time we tried to talk about your book was, I think, like the first couple weeks of the pandemic and everybody was going online and my Internet carrier became overwhelmed, and I couldn't hold hold a connection, which is pretty bad when you do an internet radio show. And try as we might, it just we just couldn't get connected back up. So thank you for your kindness and your generosity and coming back to speak to me. First of all, how are you doing?
1: Doing okay, doing all right. I mean, this is uh, I think strange times for all of us here. I I keep feeling right? like we're going to turn a corner on 2020 and. It hasn't quite worked out that way yet.
0: Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. I love dystopian thrillers, but I never thought we'd be living in one.
1: <laughs> right. You know, one of the first <laughs> uh, dystopian things I can remember reading was uh, The Stand by Stephen King. And there you I go. Captain Tripps was just a bad, uh, a bad imagination uh, patch for right. Stephen, but here we are living it, I guess.
0: I know it's crazy. I, you know, my go-to guy for all things dystopian is usually Steve Conkley, who is published by Thomas and Mercer, because he started off with the Jakarta pandemic. And I thought, holy cow, here you go. This, this is it. This right. is what Steve was yeah. writing about. And sure enough, he is one of those people who is continuously saying, this could have been prevented. You know, we knew this was going to happen. I mean, it had to happen, of course. So right. – um we just do the best we can. Now, I am grateful for the fact that I have great books to read, like yours and others. So, let's start from the beginning. I want to talk about your years of service with in Maine. I want mm-hmm. to know, first of all, something that's very pedestrian, and most people probably don't give it a second thought. But what is a detective sergeant versus a detective um, or a sergeant? <laughs>
1: So yeah, right. So uh in the chain of command just it's just a rank structure. So uh really detective is uh a step up from a patrolman and in most departments that's actually considered uh like a, a low level promotion uh, to go from uniform to plain clothes. And then the detective sergeant, um in in my books, John really sorta of does everything. He's running the show and leading the investigation. Uh, but in a lot of cases, what'll end up happening is um, you're you're as the detective sergeant, you're responsible for overseeing the work of all the detectives under you. So when I when I did that for the police department in Portland, I actually supervised uh, eight uh, violent crime detectives, and um, also uh, I had uh, the property and evidence uh, person under me, the evidence technicians wow. under me. Uh, it was quite a it's a lot. It's a lot actually. A lot. But. Uh, yeah, you kind of you you got a feel for it, and then of course the the department still tasks you with uh, being the lead investigator on certain cases as well uh, that that may arise. How
0: do you how do you make your career path go so that you want to be an investigator of homicides and violent crime? Is there like Do you make that intention known? Do you mentor with somebody? Because aren't there detectives who work solely on stolen property and burglaries and armed robberies? And then I know that there are detectives who work solely with uh, crimes against persons like domestic violence and sexual assault and childhood abuse. So is there a way that you can structure your career so that you are only involved in homicide and violent crime investigations?
1: Well, I, th- I think it's a career path that really sort of finds you, um, you know, um, early on, I knew, even, even in uh, uniform assignments, I knew that I really was drawn to doing the investigations and, uh, you know, I mean, what ends up happening is the first responders really are, are there to put a bandaid on things They're you know, to, to bring right. whatever's going on to a stop. Uh, to file the necessary reports and get the original statements and get the ball rolling as it were. And then, but the, the one thing that was a drawback for that job was that you never actually get to see everything or anything come to fruition. So right. uh, for me, I really, I, I took to the investigative side of that and, and I knew early on, that's what I wanted to do. It's, it's interesting. There was a gentleman by the name of Mike Wallace who was no longer with us. Uh, but Mike was the detective sergeant in charge of the violent crime uh, detectives when I was still a patrolman. And Mike really was a, was a great influence on a lot of officers, a lot of young officers, um, because he really he held this esteemed position within the police department. And yet you never knew it. I mean, to talk to him, he was very down to earth. Um, he would always make time uh, to, to either give you advice or to show you how to do something or to correct you if you were doing something improper. And he had such a great way about him that, you know, I knew early on if I could do any job in the police department and and try to do it really well, it was, it was Mike's job and his fate would have it. That's, that's how it went many years later. So I was very lucky, very fortunate to have gotten that shot.
0: Do you feel like it was your responsibility to also mentor those who were coming up in your detective bureau and kind of find out what their specialization was?
1: Yes, but I think to a lesser extent, um, I did inherit some new newer detectives um, when I took over that job, uh, but most of the detectives I had were fairly seasoned at that point. Uh, um so uh-huh. i really I was lucky that I didn't have to do that uh, as much with my core group, uh, but I did um, have the opportunity to do that with a number of younger officers or detectives that were sort of getting their feet wet as it were and uh it was nice to be able to try to pay that forward. I'm not sure that I ever was able to accomplish uh that same uh that same level that Mike Wallace did, but it but it was nice to be in the position to be able to do that. And hopefully I had something to offer for, for some of the younger uh, detectives.
0: I'm sure you did. I I just knowing you, I'm sure you did. Um I wanna I'm curious as to how you got pulled into the investigations with the FBI on, on counterterrorism after the September 11 attacks, I hesitate to say 9/11 because I think that's a misnomer for what happened in New York City and other places. It is September 11 that is is the big date that this country was was terrorized. Um, right? Can you can you please explain how you came to work with the FBI?
1: Um, well, it was actually um, a lot of people. I don't think realize this. I had been uh, working with the FBI as a liaison between um, the Portland Police Department and the uh, local uh, resident agency uh, for a couple of years prior to that, uh, and I think what people don't realize is that joint de- a Joint Terrorism Task Force. Uh, there are a number of those around the, around the country, and right. really they were established they were established shortly after the first attack on the Twin Towers, which happened back in '93 and um they um they started realizing that that one of the problems with the federal system when it comes to investigations is that you they tend to move around a lot a lot of the the people in the hierarchy a lot of people in the agency move around from place to place state to state right. whatever as part of their as their careers go on and right um, that's not the case with, you know, state uh, investigators or local investigators or county investigators. We tend to stay put uh, for a career, usually, in our uh, location. So we tend to know everybody. We know the players. We know when somebody new arrives. There's just sort of a wealth of information that that really wasn't being effectively mined, I don't think, until they, they finally realized it might be a good idea if we join forces. And so um, there were already forces in place and um, they expanded upon that after uh, September 11th. And I was very fortunate uh, to be tapped uh, to be the liaison. And I, I did that for four years. So uh, it it was interesting getting to see things from the other side uh, of the, uh, of the street. Uh, You know, it's, everything is perspective and, and the things that we used to complain about as, as local law enforcement was, it felt like, you know, the big cases we worked, it could end up going federal, um, when they did take them it felt like you did all the work and they put a bow on it and it it took the credit, you know. That's just sort of what it feels right. like from your from where where I was and then suddenly going to the other side and, and seeing the work that went into what happens uh at that level. It was interesting to look back and my I, let's just say I had a new appreciation for for both sides of, of what happened in those in those situations. So I but I would imagine
0: experience. resources dictated to what your even though portland is a fairly large city um you have a, a limited amount of resources that are allotted to your police department versus the federal government who can allot a l- more resources they have a lot more money they have a lot more equipment they have a lot more data technology and everything else is is that not true
1: Oh absolutely and and really the whole point of the joint terrorism task force was to to join forces between not just the FBI and the and the local but we had state investigators uh, investigators from other uh, the, you know the whole alphabet soup um uh, contingent sure. was, was involved and and so all of us brought something to the table uh whether it, it was resources uh you know financial or technical um, right. you know, the knowledge, the knowledge base, that kind of thing. And, and the reach, right. you know, the, the one nice thing about the federal system when it comes to investigations or, or, or criminal cases, uh, is the, that's a, that's a big, uh, hammer to hold over someone's head. And they, uh, it, sometimes it ends up becoming easier to get someone to actually cooperate, uh, when it comes to needing information than it is at a local level, because they know right. what is at stake. So, right right. Um, it was it was it was a good uh, marriage, I think, and I think it's a necessary marriage uh, to really stay had, vigilant to what's going on.
0: Had you ever had an interest in going to the federal side of the investigation?
1: Um, <laughs> you know, until I realized how much paperwork was involved, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I did enjoy working with them, but I can't even begin to tell you what a what a crazy amount of paperwork that was. I thought, I thought sure. working with PD was bad, but there's just you know every every I is dotted, every T is crossed, and
0: right, everything's right. in triple
1: kit. There's a lot. There's a lot to it. You know, cases, especially any involved cases. Um, you know, the bigger the case, the more work it is, and the more hands are involved in it. So, right, but I worked right. with some great folks, and. Um, made some friendships that I, I probably would never have made any other way. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that.
0: So I would like to know what is the nexus between your 27 year career in law enforcement, the FBI and your fiction writing for John Byron?
1: Uh, well, obviously I draw heavily on my own experiences to be able to write John Byron. Um, but the, the honest truth is that I wanted to be a writer long before I ever realized that I would uh, pick a career in law enforcement. So that, that was sort of a, a love gone dormant, if you will, during the during the nearly three decades I did what I did. So um, I don't think the desire ever went away, but I, I definitely uh, tamped down that whole thing, thinking that it would probably never happen. Uh, you know. So tell me more. One of those tell one me of more. younger dreams. Well,
0: tell me more. Uh, well, I mean, I, uh, where did so, uh, this desire uh, to write come from?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I I read. I mean, I think all, you you and I probably grew up very similar in that um, you know we lived at a time where we didn't have there was no internet. Uh, TV usually right. consisted of two maybe three channels if you had ten. Right,
0: three channels. Uh, right.
1: And right. so you know, as as kids, we really did have to do. Um, we had to use our imaginations more. Yeah. And I know I read a lot because my family sort of got me into that, and my teachers got me into that. And um, it was a it was a great escape to be able to pick, pick up a book and and just disappear into this other world for a while. Yeah. And, and and you know put your own things away. And I and I remember thinking even as a kid, geez, it would be really cool to be able to do this. You know you know not that it was a reachable goal, but it was just it was one of those things that kind of flitted through my head. Yeah, And then I um, understand that. I think the thing that really changed it for me was the the first what I call my foray into adult novels um was reading Stephen King's Salem's Lot. And mm-hmm. I was way too young to have read that book. <laughs> and uh and I read it and it scared the hell out of me like it was supposed to be.
0: <laughs> and,
1: but I I suddenly realized what I what I think was different about that book than all the others I had read was it felt like it felt plausible even though the the premise was over the top it felt plausible right. because he set it set it in a place that i knew he, right. and he wrote about people that i felt like i knew and right. so all of a sudden what would really be you know beyond belief uh was was very was a romantic notion to think wow you know he i mean he just sort of pulled you in and and it seemed plausible so for me i just thought wow if i could do that with my life how cool would that be so Um, And as luck would have it, uh, fate uh, gave me another shot at that uh, 30 years later, you know.
0: So um, I don't know how big your family was when you were growing up. Was it just an average size? Was it small? Was it large? Did you have two two younger siblings?
1: Yep. I was Uh the oldest. I have younger siblings. And um, uh, my brother was five years younger, who I used to terrorize unmercifully, um, which is great that he still talks to me, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, my sister's much younger. My sister is much younger, so which um, almost felt like an uncle to her. I think over the years, and uh, now that she's, now that we've both gotten older, I feel like there's less of that divide now. It feels like we're right. we're on equal footing, which is kind of cool. So.
0: So do you remember when you were at home and your siblings were around and your folks are around? Do you remember getting lost in a book?
1: All the time. Do you remember um,
0: not hearing anything going on around you?
1: Yes, I still do that. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's weird. I can do that now with writing. Um, but I, it's funny that you say that. I was just thinking about this the other day because, you know, the COVID thing has changed so much for me. Right, um, sure. One of, the, one of the places that I used to, well, aside from libraries that I would escape to to get out of the house to write um, might be the local diner. Uh, there's a, there's a bunch of eateries around here that I frequent, uh, especially if they have good corned beef hash and most of them know, know me well enough to know that if I sit down that I'm probably going to be there a while, um, after eating with coffee and writing. And I've gotten to the point where, you know, the dining room is loaded when I get there and, but I get into the zone of writing and uh, an hour later I look up and everybody that was there is gone. And I've written like three pages. So it's uh, it's really the same thing that happens, the same deal when you're reading, if you really get lost in the story. Uh, and I think as writers, we do the same thing, you know, because you're inventing the story, but you're still in it. So right. it's uh, it's cool. It's really cool if you can do that.
0: Well, so when you're between reading and writing now, do you find your mind wandering and saying, what if? Or... I wonder what's going on at that table or I wonder what that person's talking about. Do you have this imagination taking flight and saying, I, you know, I want to capture this on my phone, but I don't want to be intrusive because I think (laughs) I have an idea for a story is do you ever find yourself doing that?
1: I do and uh, every once in a while I'll hear either and uh, I'm using conversation that I, I store away later on for something I may yep. use or yep. or if I can't hear them, which becomes more frequent as my as my age increases here. Um <laughs> I've already got the help of, of amplification. So but I um a lot of time just watching the way people interact with each other and, and some of that's a holdover from my other job. Um I sure. will uh, come up with imaginative scenarios, you know, what it is they're talking about and whether or not she thinks she's full of crap, you know, that kind of thing. You could just talk right, right. somebody's face sometimes what's happening. And
0: their body you know, language and, uh, and their facial expressions. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Are they bored? Are they looking around to see what other people are doing? Uh, you know, I, I enjoy that cause it's, it's certainly, uh, it, it fires up the muse when it comes to interactions in my own writing.
0: So, Bruce, when you enter the diner, well, when you used to enter the diner to write, did you always get the seat with your back against the wall and your eyes on the door?
1: Yes, yes, I did. I still do. <laughs> Isn't
0: yeah. that hysterical? You, you know,
1: it's one of you can't break. You cannot break that habit. Uh, you talked to some of my this- other... Uh,
0: yeah hanging out with enough cops I have learned to do that and when I'm going to lunch with my best friend or something and we're sitting in a booth I say oh no you take that side I'm sitting this way I need to see (laughs) what's coming in the door I was never a cop I was an advocate you know so you isn't it so funny and 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 my life before that I was a I was a physical therapist and so I watch the way people walk and I think oh, that person has scoliosis, so they have a short leg or something.
1: It's so funny
0: the things you notice. You know, you you just watch people from your professional standpoint, and the things that you observe and that run through your mind, I I sometimes want to go over and say, excuse me, have you ever considered that you might want to do this? (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, you know. in this day and age, someone would, you know, yell at you or have you arrested. But...
1: <laughs> right, right. But you can, I mean, I drive my wife crazy with this stuff. Like, I, you know, I don't pull into a parking spot. I back in. Uh, totally. You know, oh, my God. The seatbelt. I bought the seatbelt off usually about, you know, 100 yards from where I'm going. If it's a driveway, oh that's where it is and stuff. Because oh, wait, it was are, all we ingrained are we related? Are we you. related?
0: I swear to God. Right, I am. Right? I do the same thing. I, I took my girlfriend to the doctor today. And when when I when I got wedged, I, I drive her car because it's easier for her, more comfortable for her. I have a, a small car. Mm-hmm. She said, "You don't have to back in." I said, oh, "I'm used to it." And she said, "Well, you can look and you know she has one of those things in her mirror that backs you up." I said, "I don't need that." I pop off the seatbelt as soon as we turn into her development.
1: Yep. <laughs> and Yep.
0: I've got I've got my finger on the trigger to lock those doors before she even gets out of the car. <laughs> 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 it's funny how you get into habits like that, but you know. I think that's probably why you can write around a cacophony of sounds because you can, right. You can. your habits are ingrained in how you're writing, aren't they?
1: That's exactly right. Um, and it's I'll give you a good example of that. It's not like I, I become unaware. It's just that the only thing that makes you perk up is a threat. And right. um, I remember uh, – when I was still working uniform, uh, being in a cruiser, um, you could work, you know, if sometimes it was an eight hour shift. Sometimes it was 16. If you were working a double, but you right. could carry on a conversation with somebody else right there and the radio would be turned down and you, I, I, I can't tell you how we did it, but as soon as something happened bad, because you it heard would be it. a change in voice or whatever I heard it, or if your number was called in the middle of everything else, you would hear it. Um, but the rest of it gone. just became noise, you know, unless yep. it actually mattered to you, you wouldn't perk up. So I think it's the same, yeah. same thing. It's just sort of ingrained
0: in you, you know. Um, what habits have you learned from other writers or habit did you pick up from writers that you know? Because I know you go to all the conferences. You're very collegial mm-hmm. with everyone. I mean, people just love talking to you. And, and of course, like me, I always have to – when I remember the first time I met you and you walked in the room and I said, I know, former cop, right? And you just laughed. <laughs> it just, you know. <laughs> but you have to have taken in. I, I am mean, almost like, you know, it, it, you absorb information when you're in conversations with other writers. Is there mm-hmm. one thing that stands out in your mind that has made a difference for you in your writing? Um
1: you know, I think I think every writer probably picks up things or or finds out things. So I think one of the one of the nice things is, especially this now that I'm at this point in the career, is I think every once in a while you start to feel like whatever you're going through that particular day or at that particular time is something that you know maybe no one else has ever gone through this. You know, especially if it's a struggle. And then right. there's just something nice about talking to other writers and realizing that no matter how much success they've had. Um, we all have those days or we all have those times or those things. You're, you're unsure of yourself, you know, about things. Right. And it's nice to know you're not alone in that. I think because you're the writing itself is really a pretty lonely, uh, endeavor and you really are sort of, you know, pulled right into yourself to do it. So it's nice to right. actually get a chance to visit with like-minded people and realize that we're all the same. But, you know, I think I've picked up a lot of, hopefully I've picked up only good habits from other writers. Um, you know, I've I've paid attention to a lot of things that people do and you I'm not I am not a person that will sit there taking notes on style or any of that other kind of stuff. I just know what right. I like. Um right. when I read something that I that I think was, was really well done or well structured or whatever, I just make a mental note of that. Uh and try to try to think about that if, if I ever get into that kind of scenario, what I wanna to try to avoid or what I like, you know, that I see and um, sure. you know, I think probably one of the big big lessons early on uh was Kate Flora, who uh, was my mentor when I first started out uh, and mm-hmm. became good friends, uh, we met when I was still working a job. She um, she told me that, you know, that the struggle comes and goes and, you know, success comes and goes, that it really is the writing. It has to be the writing uh, that sure. keeps you doing it and not those other things. It's the, it's the love of writing or you're not a writer. And she said that um, – you know, the thing that keeps her going when she struggles is that you just remember to put the ass in the chair because right. that's when the good right. ideas happen. And if you're not in a place you can write them down, you're, you're, you're going to miss out, you know, really is kind of how that goes. So, and I've I've taken that probably to the nth degree because I've got, I've got notes, a million notes on my phone. I've got a million notes on my iPad. I've got notes on, uh, stationery and napkins in my car. Uh, you know, whatever a good idea hits, I make sure I get it down, even if it's something that's just pleading. So I've tried to learn it Good for you.
0: So I want to approach your writing from a reader's standpoint. Um, do you enjoy hearing from from people who like your books – in other words, I know good reviews are wonderful. They make you feel good and everything. But when I know that you're very active in your community to go to libraries and signings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Do you welcome having a conversation with your reader? And are you cognizant of the fact that even though, like you've talked about, it's a solitary um, job that you have, but that you are bringing so much enjoyment to others. I mean, is that in your consciousness?
1: Um, I, I don't think about it. I don't think until I actually do talk to somebody or hear from somebody. I mean, it's not something you you sit there and think about while you're writing. You know, really, I think, I guess it's probably in the back of my mind, but I think writing has to be first for the for the writer. I mean i'm I'm not writing to try and and please somebody specifically i'm I'm writing to try to write the best I can and you know I think what was really surprising and 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 humbling was finding out that that first book actually did uh, you know strike a chord in people because I really enjoyed what I wrote so um, I'm blessed that I get a chance to continue writing these this series because you know I, I have found people that really are drawn to it and it's you know I think the thing that it, that probably keeps you going as a right of the boat is having those positive interactions, knowing that there are people out there that are really anxious for the next book to come out. And they actually do care what, what happens to John Byron and Diane. Joyner, Right. uh, Right. Like we all do. You know, I I love reading a series and, you know, your biggest fear as a series reader is this, the thing will end. You know, so um, it's, it, but it or, is fun. Uh, it's, it definitely makes a, me want to go back and write.
0: You know? But end inappropriately or abruptly without right. some resolution. Right. That's my fear when I read series characters. You know, I want my characters to change, I want the series characters to change and to grow with every new right. story that's told. Um, is it insulting to you if I say to you that your books are entertainment?
1: Not at all. I I think that's all they are, actually. Um, Okay. You you know, I mean, obviously they mean, I think they mean more to me, and and maybe they mean more to some people. But I, I think if you, I think as a writer, and this is just my personal belief, but I think as a writer, if you start to believe your own press and you start to get, you know, thinking too much of yourself, I think you'll lose sight of the fact that what you are is an entertainer. And I feel like this is just an art form. I mean, this is no different than, than being a painter or a painter, or a musician. Or, right. But absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and it really shouldn't be bigger than that. I mean, I, the whole point here is to is to do something that brings you enjoyment uh, and hopefully brings other people enjoyment. And I think that's it. I, I don't want to take myself more seriously than that because I think that's where the danger is. I think you, I think people can get caught up in, in that and, and, they they think they're they're as big as their press, and I don't I don't think that's true. You know, and I and the wow. other thing is I I think I don't want to ever lose touch with the readers. As, as long as I can individually respond to people, I do that. I I think that's important. You know, they're they're sacrificing their money and their time uh, to engage with me with my art. Uh, I think I owe them something. As long as I can, you know, physically do it.
0: Uh, but I want to tell you, it's no sacrifice when we read a Bruce Coffin book. So just let me like, <laughs> put that little little disclaimer in there. So we talked a little bit here. We men, we kind of touched on in one sentence about series characters. Um, when does a series character need to retire, or does he ever?
1: Um, I think I think the writer probably honestly knows. You know, I think there's a lot of other things that enter into it uh, that that I either may or may not be aware of. I've spoken with a writer uh, recently who was actually very, very successful, and he was telling. And I'm not going to tell you who, but he was telling me that um, one of the things that I hadn't thought about when I, because I asked that question, geez, you know, how long can you see this going? And the response I got was that um, at one point they never saw it going as long as it had gone. But it, it became a point where it almost felt like a responsibility because there were people waiting to read more. Um, and there were people that financially depended upon this writer to continue doing what they were doing.
0: We, we're and not talking that's, about that's Lee. Are, are we talking been, about yeah. Lee, by the way? Because I had the same I, conversation. I can't with him. say
1: that would be inappropriate. That, that would be yeah. highly inappropriate. But it, but it, but it, that well, name does well, sound I, familiar.
0: So. He said the exact same thing to me that the first book was I've so never good. About it. Yeah, The the yeah, publisher. Yeah. The publisher wanted him to write a second and then a third. And then after Mm -hmm. a while, you know, when he tried something else, it just never worked and the publisher wasn't happy. And so I, that kind of breaks my heart. I think it's different for writers now than when he started years and years and years ago. And there Mm were all these different publishing houses and you were kind of loyal to your publishing house, probably different now. I, I just was reading some posts from author friends and they were saying, you know, I'm thinking an eight book series ought to be enough. What, when is enough? And I just said, whenever you want it to be enough, I, I, because right. I don't right. know. Ha, have you told, have you peeled all the layers of John Byron and have you told the stories that he wants to tell your readers? That's when you have to decide if he's resolved and, and, you've told every story he could tell you, then that's the end, which is interesting because like with Michael Connelly in his last book, you know, he's introduced a new character, Renee Ballard and Renee, Michael Connelly's character, Bosch is now 70 in his last book. He's facing um, industrial cancer. Um, And Renee Ballard has almost become, you know, the, master has uh, the student has almost overtaken the master and I said right. you know what's going to happen and you know after that he he wrote his other character from a long time ago his journalist mm-hmm. he is he is coming out with a new Mickey Haller book and Bosch will play a role but you have right. to think if you've aged your character in real time and so Bosch is now 70 and he's ill and he's not as quick on his uh, on the beat as he is with somebody else. Right.
1: right. I would
0: hate for him to hang up bosh, but is it time? I don't know. Isn't that right. the writer has I to, think to that's decide an individual,
1: that. Yeah, I right. think it's an individual decision. I think you I mean yeah. I feel like as long as I want to know more about Byron and and the team around him. Right. um or they have more to say to me. Um, then if they if that keeps me interested, then I think it'll keep the readers interested that are they're already on board. Hopefully some new ones too. But um, I think that's important. And you know it's funny because I have started um, I have started several standalones that that have nothing to do with the Byron uh, series. Although I am working on Byron five, and I, it's almost like I feel like they're standing across the room watching me, judging me because I'm not writing about <laughs> them and
0: about you know, yeah.
1: So I think that might be a sign that it's not done yet. Uh, but I agree with it's a you. Strange, it's strange living with them for, you know, day after day, for years. Um, they, they The characters really become part of our lives, and I think that that's probably the hardest thing for a writer, uh, would be letting that go unless it was their decision.
0: So on a purely process and, and, and writing, creative writing perspective, So John Byron is going to be with us, which I'm thrilled because, you know, I have all of your books and I I love all of them. Um, How does John change emotionally, um, mentally, physically as each book continues, as we get another Detective Sergeant Byron mystery?
1: Well, I mean, as you know already, I have him to a point now where he is trying to figure out how uh, living in sobriety will work, uh, will given work, that, right? that, he, that he still has it's a history. you know a kind of a goofed up personal life and a very right. high high stress uh, professional life. And so, those I don't think those things definitely don't go away. I think it's a continued learning process. Um, I suspect if the series goes on long enough, I I think John may have battles in regards to uh, fighting, you know, backsliding on, on any, right. Right.
0: Um,
1: And he's still trying to mature as a person. I mean, as, as good an investigator as I think he is, um, he has flaws and I think he's well aware of what all of them are. Um, I don't think he was a very good husband. um, And I think obviously that led to him not being a husband anymore. Um, and I think both he and, and Diane have their own things that they're trying to work through. To work through, really I agree. It'll, it'll be a question of whether or not they can do it to a point where they stay together, or or they have to work in some other type of a, uh, a relationship, you know, some other environment where it's just professional. Um, I think time will tell. And really, I'm I'm sort of following their lead on that. I have I have rough idea. I I knew Aww. initially where I wanted him to be by now, by the fourth book. Um, right. And I, I'm really kind of going on their on their cues at this point because I, I feel like you know there's there's some things that would naturally happen if if uh, they had gotten to this point uh, in real right. life. And so those, those are the things I'm trying to explore now.
0: So what about the emotional toll of being a detective sergeant and seeing violent crime? How, does that play in your character development?
1: It does because, you know, I, I don't know that you can do that job for as long as, as John has done it or as long as I have done it um, and not have it change you. Um, there's no question that, you know, the, the, the things that, I mean, and I know, you know, the, the things I've yep. seen, the things I've been part of um, right. these are life altering situations True. for, for the people that, that we that we're dealing with. And so, and unfortunately for the police officer. I think it just becomes the, what, the, what your life is, you know, your life changes. Yep. And these things become the norm when any normal person would never expose themselves to that stuff, especially. Be repeatedly.
0: Absolutely. Be, yeah, I, I,
1: so I mean, I, I think, I was talking I to a true crime reporter,
0: you know? I was talking to a true crime reporter, Bruce, excuse me, was telling hmm. me that he had seen more cops with PTSD than he ever expected and even though he was a true crime reporter he went on all of these crime scenes that he even had ptsd and you know as you know i'm a survivor of violent crime and then turned around and became a victim advocate and so you have to learn coping mechanisms and a lot of people don't understand after you've come back from a really bad crime scene that there are jokes and, and and there's like this gallows humor but it's yes. a real thing because that's how you learn to compartmentalize the horror that you see versus your own mental well being. Is right. that not true? Right.
1: And it is, and you it's it's really one of the things that actually leads to all of the downfalls for people that, that do a career in law enforcement because yes. you know, if you stop and think about it, these aren't things you can come home and share with your family. Right. So right there is a huge roadblock for relationships because some of the most personal and most meaningful things that you're dealing with you can't share with yeah. the person that you spend your life with. So Exactly. Um, that, that really causes a lot of problems. I think that's that's a reason for infidelity. It's a reason marriages fail. Uh, Alcoholism. It's a reason that alcohol and substance abuse become such it's a prevalent suicide. thing. Absolutely. Suicide, depression. Um, it, yeah. it really does. And then gallows humor, I think we all believe that we all believe, I think, that we have we've built an armor around ourselves, especially if you've been doing it for a few decades. And um, they'll, at some point during your career or your personal life, they'll, they'll, something will happen where you realize that you're not invincible.
0: You're not. Um, and yeah. that
1: things that happen yeah. to other people really do affect you. Um, we're real good at, at building it up and laughing it off when it's people that we really don't know or trying to or convincing ourselves that we've done that. But when it's, when it's yeah. personal or it hits home, it's, it's just like it is for everybody else. So it comes
0: up point I think you know. that adds up. Yeah, know. I agree with you 100%. Um, being in law enforcement, and I know there's so much chatter now about, you know, police officers. I have to tell you, I worked for the city of Miami, one of the largest police departments in the country. And I worked for the city of mm-hmm. South Miami, one of the smallest. And I will tell you that not, I I cannot... I, I cannot emphasize this enough that 99% of any police department are officers who are so dedicated and who care so much about victims and care so much about protecting the citizens of their community. But it is truly just like anything else, just like the writing community, the movie community, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, there are always some bad apples in the bunch and they queer the deal for everyone. They make it look bad. I don't believe that it is a, it is every single cop is bad. I, my life was saved. As you know, you've heard me tell my story. My yeah, life was saved yeah. by the police in my neighborhood who came to rescue me when I was almost dead. So I, I have to, you know, give a shout out to all Leo's who are listening. Thank you for your service. And and you, Bruce, thank you for your service. You working in homicide and violent crimes is a very difficult thing to do. I want to talk to you. We have a little bit extra time because I love you and I wanted you to spend time with me. Let's talk (laughs) about, let's talk about how John Byron came to be and his first book.
1: Um. Really, John. I mean, there was a book before the first book, uh, the the infamous drawer novel that that all of us, I right. think, have written at least one of. Um, sure. Where I spent spent really two and a half years getting to know John, who actually wasn't even named John at that point. I can't even tell you what I what I went by. It wasn't until later on that I realized I wanted to name him John Byron. So, but. Um, John, really, I think what I set out to do was to write something that was, uh, I guess, an amalgamation of of, uh, the officers that I had worked with, the officers that had trained me to become a police officer, and myself. Um, You know, I worked with a a wide variety of men and women over the years that that taught me, you know, the good and the bad of law enforcement. And I got to see a lot of examples of of what their lives were like and what their work was like, who they were. Um, and sometimes even find out who they were before I met them. Uh, And I I drew on a lot of that. I wanted to be able to really paint a very realistic portrayal of what a, you know, a 20-year detective sergeant would be like, you know, and and that's where a lot of John's issues come in. I I know that, you know, people love to, you know, to call that a trope or, or say it's a stereotype of a police officer, but, uh, I didn't pick it for that reason. I picked it because that's the reality. Those are the. That's yeah, exactly the right. stuff that, you know, people I worked with deal with. And so I wanted to be able to write it as true to life as I could while telling fictional stories because I thought that would really bring a lot of, of um, you know, a realism to the page for the reader. I wanted them to, to be immersed and feel like they were right there with John or right there with Diane and dealing right. emotionally with what's happening, not just the you know, the thrill of the hunt and trying to catch the bad guy. So.
0: Well, I think that's why, you know, when I was introducing you, I said it feels so authentic to me having worked for a couple of different police departments. I can see folks that I worked with, both male and female hmm. law enforcement officers and the, the detective division, which is very small in one place and very huge in another place, um, I could see how the personalities either clashed or interacted, how people spoke to suspects or victims or witnesses. So to me, it right. felt very, very real. Um, and, and I have to tell you, just I'm going to tell you one odd story about working in a very small police department. There were eleven thousand maybe five hundred citizens residents of this one community that I worked in and um, mm-hmm. so I was there I was their citizen advocate not their victim advocate I actually worked for the mayor and the chief of police and so mm-hmm. um, when I was on call at night batcher would or the the dis- police dispatcher who was a patrol officer but assigned to the desk rather than a regular dispatcher would call and say, okay, so-and-so wants to talk to you. And he always would try to get information from a, from a victim. And I'd say, you can't ask that. You're, you can't ask personal information. I'm, I'm sworn by the state attorney's office to take, you know, sworn statements you cannot ask. And so, Mm -hmm. um, but because he kept getting passed over and he was so frustrated one day he went on an, a, binge and alcohol binge and he called mm-hmm. in bomb threats to the police department. Oof. He completely lost his mind. He called in yeah. bomb threats. And I thought, wow, that is the stress that just someone who sits at a desk taking 911 calls all day long is under. Oh, I
1: can't. I can't even imagine. We I actually yeah. I tried to, I've written that into a couple of different books and We've talked about that. Um, I have yeah. a lot of dispatcher friends, as you might imagine, because I, I worked alongside them. And I always said right. the same thing. I would much rather be out at the scene and in, in dealing with whatever danger awaits, because I feel like I at least have some control over that, even if it's imagined. Yes. But, yes. but sending people to it and then sitting there in the dark waiting to find out if they're okay, you know, just a radio yeah. carrier signal and no, no one answering you has to be hell. So, uh, you know, hats off to the dispatchers and and 911 operators because none of us could do what we did without without knowing that the family was back there, you know.
0: Yeah, and, you know, and of course, I'm sure your 911 dispatchers and and operators would say to you, okay, someone called because their Internet is out or someone called because the cat's (laughs) in the tree or something like that. I I know you get all (laughs) kinds of crazy calls. But, oh, yeah. but, you know, with the pressure of not knowing how your fellow officers are doing, especially in a volatile situation, or if you have a victim who's dying or or I have to tell you my one of my most traumatic cases is just going to a suicide, so right. it 's really hard to compartmentalize all this and come out. Bruce, I adore your books. I think um, in, probably so within plain sight is one of the best police procedurals I've ever read, and you know I read those a yeah. lot. I love the book. It's it's, it's, it is terrific, and can you give us a hint about what's going to happen with Byron 5? Just a hint,
1: or do so, you have a title um, or a working do, title? Tell you this. The working title is Under the Gun. It would appear I have okay. not run out of prepositions just yet. And, you have um, great titles, John... though.
0: I love the titles <laughs> of your books. <laughs> Thank you.
1: And uh, John, John is going to be dealing with uh, a couple of different things. Um, Diane, after this last book, has now become his equal, so she'll be back in the detective bureau as a detective sergeant. And so they will no longer be in that partner mode or just two sergeants mode. They'll be splitting up the homicide cases that come in. And so there will be a parallel uh, storyline going on here. And um, John is going to have to deal with the uh, realization that he is no longer the top dog. And I think you're going to find that puts some strain on that relationship. So. uh, I
0: I love that dynamic because not only do you have this couple who's trying to figure it out personally, but they're trying to figure it out professionally. And let's face it, no matter how open-minded police departments are in the detective bureau it's generally guys in there it's men and you know they're thinking maybe you know hey i earned my spot you didn't and there is still a good old boys network and i'm sure. not suggesting you i am saying it is just the reality right. of what happens in law enforcement just as it is with right. the military i'm sorry if you hear my cat talking i have no idea why Um
1: <laughs> uh- <laughs> wing in
0: She's caught yes, she loves your books too. Okay? So we're good. I'll take a picture of her sitting on your book.
1: <laughs> that's great. Bruce, no, but tell that's everyone, true, I think. Yeah. That tell
0: everyone true. where they can find you on the web and where you are on social media.
1: All right. Uh you can go to com and uh that is my website. Yeah, I I will apologize in advance. The only thing I haven't kept up to date is the uh events because they've all been cancelled. So <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> But um you can you can okay. find me on Facebook at Bruce Robert Coffin um and Bruce Coffin. Uh I'm on Instagram and I'm also on Twitter. So uh pretty much everywhere. And well, the let me you find you on,
0: you find books yeah, you can find on online are also at your local
1: bookseller. Yeah, you can find the books.
0: Go because yeah. he has great covers on his books. You will grab them immediately. They're fantastic. So I want to ask you a question about marketing and publicity as as an author because, let's face it, no matter who you're published with, you still have to do that. Um, how right. much of your time do you spend dedicated to social media on a daily basis no matter who you are, this is your business, your small business mm-hmm. that you still have to promote. So, um, so what's the key to promoting, and how much time do you spend?
1: Um, I probably spend uh, on an average day. It's probably a couple of hours. It's not all at once. I may, you know, do hit and runs on different uh, social media sure. platforms or respond to emails or that kind of thing. Um, it's really for me. I just try to stay in touch. Um, you obviously have to do uh, a certain amount of the buy my book dance. I mean, there's no way around that uh, because there are new people finding out all the time, or uh, you're trying to keep up to speed on what is happening. But I, I try not to do it as a buy my book dance. I mean, it might just be things that have been happening professionally with me as updates or uh, events that I'm at with other people or that type of thing. Um, And, and I and I think the other important piece is because you don't want to overload that is the whole point of social media is to really be social and I I try right. to share the bits of my life that I'm comfortable sharing um, sure as I would with you know if if all you know five thousand friends were were actual friends that I could go next door and meet you know and hang out with right right so I right. I you know I think that's important because I. You know, you're there's the same reason when you when you go to a talk, uh, you are talking about your book, but you're also telling them about you and yes. sharing some things about yourself with them. I, that to me, that was always the great thing about going to see the author, because I wanted to know who they were, not just what they wrote. Yes. And yes. So I try and do that. I think that's important. You know, I try to make an effort, uh, as I did when I was a, a boss, to to acknowledge the birthdays of all my friends and that kind of thing. And so for me, the social go. media thing, I try to treat them all like, you know, they were people that I, that I saw every day. So I think that's important. I think every writer could benefit by that, you know,
0: oh, so I I, agree it's time
1: you. consuming, but I think it's important. So.
0: Well, it's, it's critical. If you're serious about marketing your books and, and getting feedback from your readers and interacting with your friends, you know, let's. I, I have to tell you honestly, if if I didn't do what I do and I wasn't part of this network, I wouldn't be on social media. But I happen to adore all the people I get to talk to. So, and I. Oh, and and you're you great know, at
1: it. You're absolutely. Great
0: oh, at it. thanks. You know, but but you are too. I mean, listen, you and I became friends, I think, after one of the conferences. But then, we talk all the time on social media. So that's it's a right. good thing, right? Yeah, it is. It is a good thing. Bruce, I owe you so much gratitude for coming back after I, I dropped you all. so many times in the past. Will you <laughs> promise me you will come back and be a guest host to whomever you want to talk to?
1: I promise. That would be my pleasure.
0: Give your wife my love. You take care of yourself. That. Be safe. Good. I can't wait to get the next book. And um Have a great evening. Listeners, thank you you for being with me. This is Bruce Coffin. He is the author of the Detective Byron Mystery Series. Please go to your favorite bookseller and pick up his book. I promise you won't be disappointed. So thank you for listening, and thank you, Mom and Dad. See you later.